barely scathes by by blowing up the Death Star with a proton torpedo. Got kind of louder there, didn't it? (laughs) Or when George Bailey, at the end of the movie, it seems like all is lost and he's hopeless. He's going to go to jail and be bankrupt when the city comes through and actually provides for him. Or what about in the Avengers, whenever Iron Man actually finds the stones and he snaps Thanos and his army into dust? All of those moments, those sudden turns excite us. We, we get chills in those moments. At least I hope you do. And don't you long for a, a surprising turn of events in your life? Something good when you're in a doctor's office and you're receiving yet another bad test result. Or when you're on your first date, or or when you pray for victory from sin that seems to be winning. And and I bet some of you, even after the first half, when the Suns were losing by 30 points to the Mavs in Game 7, kept watching. You don't have to confess it here. But what were you hoping for, really? Magic dust? Our text this morning promises a catastrophe for God's people, though. That longing that you have, I think, was put in your heart by God. That's what movies are tapping into. See, we're right in the middle of our summer series on the servant section of Isaiah. That's chapters 40 to 55. Now, the first section of Isaiah looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promises to David. He made a covenant with him that he would bring about a king who would uh, be spirit-anointed, And this guy would be a deliverer for his people, and he would rule forever from an eternal throne. But it ends in chapter 39 with Hezekiah, one of the greatest kings of Judah, failing. And God warns him that his sons are going to be carried off into exile. The future, in the short term, does not look good for Judah or for King Hezekiah. And he was one of the greatest kings of Judah. God's people, they rejected God, and God's king rejected him But God, in the short term, is rejecting his people. But the failure of Judah's kings is immediately followed by these words of comfort that we find in our section, chapters 40 to 55. And and, and you'll find that he is giving assurance to his people that his temporary rejection for their sins, issued out of a, a heart of love for his people, he has disciplined them. But God did not quit his people even if they quit him. That assurance that began in Isaiah 40, it is hitting a fever pitch here in Isaiah 41, 8 to 20. This is where he is going to give us three images of the hope that his people can have about the coming future. It is not all exile. God is going to call them back. He is going to restore them. And he uses these three illustrations of God's transforming presence in their life to give hope to a hopeless people. They they look around them and everything looks hopeless. Their future seems to be gone, but God is going to turn it for their good. Now, our big idea this morning is this. If you're writing notes, you can write this down. It's that God will restore the fortunes of his chosen helpless servant. God will restore the fortunes of his chosen helpless servant. Now first, you'll notice in verses 8 to 10 that God elected this servant. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might be asking yourself, what is so special about Israel? And so much of the Old Testament is about 
God pursuing this people who don't seem to pursue him back. Well, you'll notice in verse 8, it begins with, but you. And that but you is setting Israel apart from the other nations that were mentioned in verses 5 to 7. Those nations that rather than turning to God to renew their strength, actually turned from him towards idolatry, towards political powers. They did not trust him. But he is now looking to Israel, and he says, you are distinct from them. Your future is different than the future that they look forward to. And notice how in verses 8 to 9, God provides a short summary of God's electing grace being poured out on them. And you can't miss God's initiative in choosing them with all of the first-person pronouns that he drops in this section. Uh, So look there with me at what he says in verses 8 to 9. Isaiah 41, beginning in verse 8, he says this, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the the farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Now, God's reminding here Israel of his initiative in electing Israel as his servant. God, he created all people by the power of his, his very word. But he enjoys a special, intimate, covenant relationship with this people. In fact, you'll notice that God calls this people uh, four things here in the text, uh, right in these first, uh, this first part of verse, verse 8. Uh, notice he calls Israel, my servant. Now, this is the first time we see this popular word in Isaiah uh, pop up, and it doesn't always mean the same thing. But, but John McKay says that servant imagery is perhaps the most significant symbol in the Bible and in Christian religion. In fact, nearly a third of the Old Testament references of this word describe it as either an individual or a nation, and they are God's servant. But the servant here is speaking of the whole nation of Israel, God's people. A servant lives to do the will of his master, but he also enjoys the privileges of being protected and provided for by a good master. God was a a good master to his people. He protected them. He loved them. He cared for them. He made a people who were no people a people. In fact, that's what it means when it says that God elected Israel, or more literally, I have chosen you. Now, when someone wins an election in our culture, typically what you are thinking is it's usually because they were a better speaker, more charismatic. Uh, They were uh, obviously, if they won this, uh, someone who had more money and resources to work with, or or maybe they had more connections. In other words, when somebody wins an election on earth, we're thinking that this is somebody who has exhibited more than the average person, or at least more than the person they were running against. Uh, If you're playing pickup basketball, and guys are splitting up teams, and they are choosing people, you usually choose the person first who is what? More, not less, better at basketball, right? Like usually you're like, man, uh, I hope they don't choose me last. If they do, I'll show them, right? Like I'm better than they think. That's not how God chooses Israel, though. He explains that he did not choose them from among the nations based on anything more in them. 
In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, he says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that he has done this. Now, did you catch that? God says, I elected you not because you were more, but because you were less. Not because you were strong, but because you were weak. It is actually those disadvantages that I saw as fit to use as a canvas against which to declare my glory to the nations. I also chose you, did you catch this, because of who you're an offspring of? And he mentions this back in Isaiah 41.8. He calls them the offspring of Abraham. Now, if you're new to church history and and to the Bible, uh, God made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised him an offspring, and that this offspring would actually have kings that would come from him, that he would have a land, that he would be a ruler through whom which the nations would be blessed. In fact, he told him that his offspring would eventually be as numerous as the stars of heaven in Genesis 17. And God would fulfill that promise in and through this offspring. Well, the very existence of Israel testifies to God keeping of his promises to Abraham, who only had one offspring, he did, and yet had Israel, which came out of Egypt with as many people as the stars of the heaven, as it says. It is a demonstration of God's power. But notice he also calls him my friend, literally a a word that means my beloved which resonates really great with the song that we sang. Great job, Kevin, in choosing that. But again, God did not love Israel because of anything great in them, but because of the great love with which God loved them. I like what Alec Motye says here. He comments, election, they're choosing, it arises from divine love. that's, That's where it comes from, God choosing others. It is not because he looks down and says, I'm going to get those who have the the highest IQ or those who are the strongest or the most successful or have the most untapped potential energy. No, he looks down and it's his divine love that drives him. He doesn't tell us what drives that divine love. It just flows out of divine love. But it issues this election in response of love. If we have experienced the love of God coming upon us so undeservedly, then it will spring forth back into responsive love for God. 1 John 4.19 says as much. It says, we love because He first loved us. Your love at its best, at its purest, is a rebounded love from God. It is a ricocheted love going to you and then being reflected back to Him in all of His glory. We did not create love. God is love. We cannot love unless God gives us the love to love Him back with. And notice God's initiative again in verse 9. He calls Israel from the ends of the earth, from the corners of the planet, just like he called Abraham from Ur and called Israel from captivity in Egypt. And then he ends by declaring, not only has he chosen you, but I will not cast you off. Literally, I will not and have not rejected you. Anybody felt rejected by God ever because of your sin, because of your circumstances? This is who God's speaking to, a people whom God has said, you are my people, and yet experientially, they do not feel like this is what the people of God feel like. Do the people of God face the kinds of tragedies 
the kinds of struggles, the kind of sickness, the kind of sorrow, the kind of bitterness that, that we have experienced. And, and not to mention the consequences that we have justly brought on ourselves because of our sins. It feels like God should have rejected us. It feels like God has rejected us. And yet in that moment, what good news. God comes and reminds him, not only have I chosen you first, but I have continued to choose you. I have not casted you off. Isaiah rejected God. I mean, Judah rejected God in his word in Isaiah 5, 24. And God rejected Judah temporarily in their discipline as they're carried off in exile. But here God says, I have not ultimately rejected you. I will restore you. Can you see how that would be a, a majestic turn of events in your life? Uh, look what he says in verse 10. Let these words wash over your soul in Christ. Here's what he says. Fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What good news for weary exiles who fear that God has forgotten, rejected, and abandoned them. Their sins got them into this pickle. And yet they feel rejected by God and the world. But they are not just servants of Babylon. I mean, they are servants of Babylon in this moment, right? They are servants also of the covenant-keeping God. Do you see the beauty of that? Exiled in Babylon, God reminding them, no, you're still my servant. They, they might not see it and know it, but it's true. They, they look around and all they, they find is that they are mocked, fed the lions, burned, commanded to bend the knee to idols. They are rejects of the world. And they feel in this moment that not only is the world rejecting them, but maybe God has rejected them. And God says, I chose you first and I choose you still. Isn't that beautiful news to Wearied, wearied souls. He doesn't just say, I am with you. I think here he says, I am still with you. Such good news to God's people. Let me give you a couple of quick encouragements here. First, this promise is doubly true for those of us who are in Christ. You may feel like God is a million miles away. Ever had that moment? Ever had that season? Maybe in that moment right now, it feels like God is far away. Circumstances are difficult. You're wondering, is there any way that these things can change? Can joy ever enter back into the room again? Will I ever want to sing again? Is it possible that God even wants to help bring about the change that I need? Is he still for me? But speaking from heaven with all authority, Jesus looks down to his beleaguered 11-ish disciples who have not been great during the, the death of Jesus. And yet he speaks to them and he says, I want you to go and I want you to make me known to everyone. You're going to fill the earth with the glory of my name. And behold, he ends in verse 20 saying this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, what does always mean? Do I need to draw like a pie chart like Mal did or something? No, like always means always, right? Like there are no times that he is not with his people. What a promise that comes from Jesus. None will ever snatch us out of the hand of Christ. 
But second, Jesus is ultimately for you because of who he is, not because of who you are. Do you see that here in these verses? Like he didn't say, Israel, let me tell you about how great you are and why I chose you. Not a lot of that. What there is a lot of, though, is God and what I have done and what I am committed to because of who I am. So catch this. You mess up, I have not changed. I'm a God who will keep his promises. You're not going to in any way bankrupt the promises that I have for you. In fact, Ephesians 1 says he chose those of us in Christ from before the foundations of the earth when it was laid. So we must respond in love to the one who first loved us. But remember this, he first loved and elected us. And that should bring comfort. God's electing grace angers rebels. But it comforts saints who know their desperate need for God to be so much more than what they are. God's the hero who came for a people when no one else was coming for them. But notice second, there is a dramatic turn that is coming for those who are God's people. And and God gives three pictures in in the body of this text to give assurance to his people. And, And all of these are pictures of what look like a future change or turn or event a kind of you catastrophe that's going to be happening in the lives of his people. And it's kind of firing off here and then there and then there. And each of these is highlighting God's strength and helping his helpless people. Uh, Notice the first assurance. The human enemies of God's servant won't stand a chance in verses 11 to 13. He says, behold, behold all who are incensed against you. As though they had forgotten about it. But what he's doing is he's, he's actually signaling a dramatic change of events that's happening in verses 11 to 13. The present circumstances are characterized by helplessness before a, a hostile human enemy, striving or warring against God's people. They have enemies at the gate. But did you catch how God speaks of a dramatic turn on a future day? When those enemies, he says, they shall be put to shame and confounded. And it's so sound that he says the CIA can't even find them. Like they're going to disappear. They're going to be not just nothing, but less than nothing. A picture of decreation. They'll be less than what they were. They will be wiped off the face of the earth. You know, Isaiah watched God do something very similar in his days. As he saw that King Hezekiah had Assyria at at his gates threatening him. And not only did the king of Assyria threaten him, he also taunted Hezekiah's God. He says, oh, I've seen lots of kings who have talked about the power of their gods. Not one of them has has carried true on his word yet. Do you think your God's going to be different? And he's telling his people, don't trust this king or his God. And yet what Hezekiah does is he bows before the Lord and he prays and God promises deliverance. And what does God do? God delivers him. In fact, we find that the king of Assyria is pushed back And only is pushed back, the next scene is that his sons kill him. And not long after that, historically, we know they were wiped off the map. Well, verse 13 tells us why God does this. He says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. So when you hear the voice of God say, fear not, it it ought to create 
confidence that God's got this. When he says, fear not to his people, the message is, I don't know what it is you're facing. He knows. I don't. But his message is, I've got whatever it is. And if God is for me, then who can be against me? Well, in verse 10, God promised to uphold Israel with his righteous right hand. Do you remember that? I'll I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. And here in verse 13, God says, I hold your right hand. Now just think about this. The mighty hand of God upholding our hand such that we are able to work through. He strengthens us to work through whatever it is that he puts before us in life circumstances. We, we learn to be content with little and much because God has us. We are in Christ. Uh, this reminds me of a, an episode I had when I was in high school. I was on the football team and we were lifting weights. And one day, the guys, they were always trying to do way too much weight. It always kind of made me nervous. And one day they're like, hey, we're going to put like almost 500 pounds on here. I want you to get under. I want you to squat this. And I said, I can't squat that. That's like a car. I, I don't want to. And uh, before I knew it, that somehow they had me under it. I was a dumb kid. And as I started to go down, I just felt my whole body, body kind of buckling. And then all of a sudden, everything just got real easy. And they said, go ahead. And I went down and they came back up. And uh, I was terrified for my life in that moment. And they got it back on the rack, and they were like, look at you, you did it. And uh, I looked at them, and I said, I will never do that again. <laughs> there is no way that on my own I could ever get that. I'm more of like a, like, you know, half that kind of guy. And uh, that's scary, and that could have killed me. In fact, if you weren't here, when I look back on that story, you know what I remember? It's not like how much weight I got on that day, but how much weight almost killed me that day. And how those guys saved my life. I couldn't have made it without them. And isn't that the way that our life works with God? How many episodes do you have in your life that on the front end, you're like terrified, like I can't do it. And then all you have to cling to through those moments is God. And some of your prayers, they aren't even good prayers. They're like, help. And and that's all you do. You weep and you pray. And then you get to the other side and you look back and you're like, I don't know how I did that. When you get to the other side, you know who it was that carried you through. See, we don't have to fear the human enemies of this life here. God says, because I am the one who helps you. And I love the second image. If you're a kid and you're like, hey, I'd like to draw a picture for the sermon, this is a great picture to draw for the sermon, great image. Uh, The second assurance that he brings in is this. God transforms his servant into a triumphant battle worm. Is that not worth drawing? Verses 14 to 16. Look how it happens. Y'all were like, man, I didn't know we were getting all this. It's like a video game. But look what happens. Verse 14 to 16. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Now, if this first image... If the first image described despair over their human enemies, the second one is highlighting human weakness. God is assuring the hearts of of those who feel weak and despised in and of themselves, like they don't have the resources in themselves to meet the challenges that face them. And, And God here calls Israel a worm, which is, by the way, 
not exactly a majestic creature by any measure. I looked it up in the dictionary. Not majestic ever. Wasn't then, isn't now. They are not strong. They are not fast. They are not smart. They are not beautiful. You're not going to find a lot of sports teams called the Mighty Worms. You'll likely not hear a guy refer to his wife as a beautiful worm. And have you ever been fishing with worms? Like, the worm seems to be really gifted at two things, um, pooping and running, right? Like, to get away if you're trying to, like, put a hook in it. Worms are not, like, powerful, majestic creatures. A worm represents the weakness and the lowliness of humanity, and we, we see this elsewhere in the Old Testament. In fact, in Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm speaking of Christ, the one that talks about him being pierced for our transgressions, we find that David, speaking through the Spirit, cries out to God, and he says, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me, they, they mock me, they make they, uh, wag their mouths at me and they wag their heads. But notice the transformation of a worm is helped by his Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. When this worm meets the, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, he no longer remains the same. He is different. Now, who is the Holy One of Israel? That's a, a popular phrase for God that we find in Isaiah. It points to his majestic transcendence. There is none like him. He is wholly other than us. But it also points to his moral purity, the fact that there is none so good, just, and right as God. He is perfect in all of those. Everyone else has to sort of edit their own morality to God's version of morality because he is sovereign. He's not like sinful humanity, like Judah who sinned again and again against God. Yet, did you notice what the transcendent, morally pure, holy one of Israel does here? He stoops down to help the dirty grub worm. He picks him up, and he's described as his redeemer. Now, this is even more startling. This word for redeemer expresses God's commitment to the worm as his kinsman redeemer. That's the next of kin who would have been responsible for the welfare of a family of a man of Israel who died like Boaz did for Elimelech in the book of Ruth. He took up his family's cause. And God's servant is despised and mocked by others as weak, unimportant, unable to help themselves. This worm in this text feels like a worm, weak and helpless to help himself. God's servant is rejected by men. But did you see this? He is simultaneously accepted by God. Startling. And notice the future transformation that God promises his servant, this worm. God transforms his people from a humble, despised worm into a majestic, terrifying battle worm. The threshing sledge was a heavy wooden platform with sharp pieces of metal underneath, which when drug over crops, it would, it would cut them. It would literally cut through the ground. And these worms had teeth. Did you see that? Sharp teeth. Mountains and hills are flattened as they move forward, and all that is left in their wake is chaff, which the wind comes and blows away back to the corners of the earth. Not like God's united people. 
drawn to him. And notice the response of this worm to the victory. God empowered them to bring about deliverance from their sins and the consequences. But what does the worm say? Does he say, you know, just look at me now? <laughs> kind of like Toby Keith's song, How Do You Like Me Now? Like, is, is that what he's saying? Like, look at what I've done for myself. Don't you regret, like, not staying with me? Well, no, in verse 16, we're told the worm on that day will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. And we see a, a few realities I just want to highlight real quick here. First, this is what it looks like when God strengthens worms. Mountains can't stand in their way. God doesn't save his people because they are full of untapped glory. I, I know that this is kind of like going against the grain of a culture that says that your greatest sort of good is to express yourself. You're kind of like a canvas of art that you just want to create something beautiful that the world appreciates the greatness of who you are. But what God says here clearly, and this is good news for people that know that there is something wrong with us, that we are broken sinners who need to be saved and helped and changed from without, not from within. He says, here's the good news. I am the one who transforms the unlovely. I am the, ones who come, I am the one who comes from those who don't have untapped glory. He comes for them not because they are glorious, but because they are worms. Why? Why would he do this? Second, because God doesn't save us because we are glorious, but because he is. Because God is glorious. He's not a worm. He is altogether glory. He is the transcendent Holy One of Israel. There is none like him in his actions and his deeds. He is creator. Everything else is created. There is none equal to him. The worm who is truly transformed understands who has transformed them. Do you know who's changed you? Have you been changed? If, if that's happened, that is not because you got better philosophy. It's because you got God. See, victory is God's, not theirs. God delivered Hezekiah from Assyria. And then Hezekiah, you know what he does? He, he sees Babylon, and he's like, oh, look, God saved us. Uh, King of Babylon, I want you to come in. I want you to see something really amazing. My bank account. Have you seen my treasure? Oh, don't miss it. Like here and this and that and all these things that we have, oh, you know, great Assyria far in, in the back burner. We're fine now. Look at me. No, he saw his strength as his strength, not God's. He lost sight of the glory and majesty and his desperate need for God. He forgot about it. See, our strength is a dependent strength, brother and sister. God did not call you because he needed you. He called you because you needed him and because he is good and because he loves. And today, faith, is, faith in Christ is what depending on God's strength, looks like. God is already transforming us from one degree of glory to the next into the image of Christ, who is of far more transcendent glory than this majestic battle worm. We look more like Christ, like the Son of God. Third, the ultimate purpose of God saving us is His glory. The result in these verses is his people rejoicing over God's salvation. But the ultimate end is God's people giving glory to God. See, worms singing praises to the eternal majestic God who stepped down to rescue them, that is the God that we serve. 
So when we sing, let us sing over the God who transforms His people into something glorious. And if this morning you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I still feel like a worm, then know this, there is only one place to go. There's only one person that can transform worms in this way, and that is Jesus Christ. He's our hero. He is worthy of all praise. Third assurance, God will restore a barren creation in verses 17 to 20. Now, you'll remember in Deuteronomy, God promised his people that there would be a curse if they did not keep covenant. And a couple of the curses that he gives them, he says, you'll experience a barren land, like in a famine, and a barren womb, like no babies. Famine would lead to poor and needy, parched with thirst in the desert. They would long for water, but there would be no water. And that appears to be the scene of this image as God shows up in verse 17. But take note again of the transformation, the turn. Here's what he says in verses 17 to 19. He says this. He says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, the Lord will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. It, it appears that the poor and needy cry out to God in prayer in verse 17. Did, did you catch that? Because the Lord says, I, the Lord, will answer them, which sort of assumes that they have been calling out to God for help. And he says, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them, will not abandon them. Now, this sounds much like the experience of Israel in the wilderness as they wandered and were thirsty. They prayed again and again for life-giving water to save them from death. And they are presently, in the moment, thirsty and desperate for water. But God assures them, there is coming a day, a future day, when I will answer your prayers and I will reverse the curse of the famine. And on that day, he doesn't just deliver a little water. He opens a water park in the desert. That was God's idea, building a water park in the desert, not ours. And he opens rivers on the bare heights in verse 18. Usually water flows downhill, not up, but this indicates it is clearly a work of God who is not bound by what appears normal to our experience. And then fountains are springing up all over the place. Water was nowhere for a long time, but now it's everywhere. And verse 19 adds that all kinds of trees spring up seemingly at once. And again, the trees that are listed here, different trees, trees that usually don't hang together, not usually in the same place. And yet here, springing up together in what appears to be a, a new creation different from this creation. Well, that explains verse 20's explanation of the miraculous waters and trees springing up out of nowhere in what looks like a new garden of Eden. This is the explanation, verse 20, the purpose. That they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. This is a new creation that breaks out. The purpose that the poor and needy might see and know. I want my people who, are, who have experienced brokenness and exile, I want them to see and know 
who I am. See and know that I have done good things for them, that I have reversed their fortunes. Now, the book begins with God telling Isaiah in Isaiah 6-9 that he is going to be sent to preach to a people who will hear but not understand and see but not perceive. There is another beautiful reversal here. Now God has acted. He has spoken again, telling them what he will do, and then he's going to do it, and he's going to say, I want you to look at what I said I was going to do and then what I did, and I want you to know that I've done it. And when they do this, when God does this before them, then they will see and understand. They will hear and believe what God has done. So that God has not just brought back the water, but he has opened up their ears to see the majesty of who God is. The beauty here is that God opens their eyes to see and know, and ears to hear and understand God's word. That the hand of God helped them, and the Holy One of Israel restored the garden lost in the fall. And Jesus tells us that day has already arrived in part in Christ. There's another day coming in the new heavens and the new earth. That is a great eucatastrophe we long for when Jesus comes back to set things right. But even now we experience some of the goodness of God's changing and transforming acts. In John 7, 37 to 38, Jesus picks up on this. This scene that we find in these verses. He says, on the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, by the way, if anybody's thirsty for Jesus here today, this is still true, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He is the water source who has showed up, and he says, If, if you come and drink from me, not only are you going to be satisfied, you're going to be able to give water to others. And then verse 39, he says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Speaking of his cross work, being raised from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, where he would then pour down his Spirit upon his people. So that if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He will not leave or forsake you. He is with you. Christ is with you through the power of the Spirit. But let me just give a, a few closing applications. God still chooses the weak and the powerless according to God's standards, 1 Corinthians 1. If you feel weak and powerless and unable to be used by God, man, you might be just the kind of lumber he's looking for. God brings much glory to his name through people that know their desperate need of him. We depend on God knowing that he receives all of the glory with whatever it is that he leads our life through as we're seeking to be faithful to him. He will do more than what we imagine. Not only that, be reminded this morning that God's spirit indwells you even now. And the purpose of him giving you his spirit is not only so that you may drink deeply of Christ, but that you might also help others to drink deeply of Jesus. He is the only one who offers the living water that a lost and dying, a desperately spiritually parched world longs and needs for. They don't know it, but you know it. They need Christ. So if you have the spirit, then your job is, as a Christian, is to go out and to share Christ 
with others. You're saving people dying in a spiritual desert. And if you're this morning one of those people who's a non-Christian, who has not tasted and seen that Jesus is good, if you're one of those people that when you come to the Bible, you, you don't hear, you don't understand, you don't believe, and you think it's because you know, it's just not your thing. It's because you need an act of God. You need to drink of Christ. You need the help of His Spirit. So this morning, I encourage you, put your faith in Christ. Trust Him to give you eyes to see your need of the cross, to see your sin, to see the hope that is only available in the risen Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father and promises to come back for His people and to change their fortunes. Please don't leave without putting your faith in Christ if you haven't done that today. Know this too, that God's people, we become wells of living water, pointing others to Christ. But also, we as God's people, we too can become thirsty. And maybe that's you today. You're thinking, I, I don't feel like I've had a good drink in a while. Like I'm feeling parched and I don't know who to blame. It, it might be the preacher or the elders or the church uh, it might be Netflix, like they haven't, they've had too much good stuff on. Uh, it, it could be the news. It, it could be my job. Like, I don't know. I'm feeling dry. I think the Lord has just put me th th through too much to actually drink deeply of Christ. Well, imagine yourself in exile in Babylon, being threatened to be thrown in an oven. You know, those men didn't say it was too much for them to trust God. Take and drink wherever you are from Christ. Look to His Word. Trust His Word. Be obedient. Seek out other Christians. Confess to them humbly your need for more of Jesus. And even your greater need to want more of Jesus. Because like that's the big problem right now is even wanting to want Jesus as you should. Seeing the, the goodness of the water that, that you were made for, that you were made to need. Not only that, God's people need one another to deep drinkly from God. We all have different gifts of the Spirit intended to build up the church. Let me encourage you. As you are seeking to live life in the local church with your brothers and sisters in Christ, try to do it in, in such a way that you are coming with the intent of being life-giving presence in the life of others that you meet with on a Sunday or on a Wednesday Bible study or during coffee during the week. Don't go as another checkbox item, but I want to encourage and help this person along the way so that they can go out and show other people where the living water is. I was so encouraged. Uh, I could give a ton of illustrations, but I was looking on Facebook this weekend, like two seconds, I promise, and I saw a picture of Andy McClurg. Sorry to draw people towards this. You're all going to go look it up, but serving an SAF, one of our elders, and he's just like jumping up and like, and, you know, I was thinking, it could scare kids, but they liked it. And they were having a blast, and he's holding them, and he's reading them Bible stories. And I'm sitting there just looking at this brother, like, not only is he encouraging those children to see what a man who loves God looks like, he's encouraging us by the way that he's ministering to our children. Like, we want to be that kind of life-giving presence in droves. I see examples and illustrations of that all over the place. But I'm, I'm running out of time, so we're going to move on. I want to encourage you this morning, take and drink. Jesus is good. There is none better. You need him. You can't live without him. Let's pray. Well, this morning, as we come before you, we praise you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, all of our futures turn on what he has done 
for us at the cross in the resurrection, the ascension. And Lord, we know a great future awaits us. We have it now in part. We have great hope. There's beauty amongst us. Your Spirit is in us and working through us. You are changing lives and transforming us. But all of this is just small, in small degrees compared to the great whole creation change that is coming. Lord, we long for that day. But until that day, Lord, help us to be faithful and to trust on your strength, to depend on you, to walk in your spirit, to the glory of your name and your name alone. And it's in that name that we do pray. Amen.